Church of 1122 at all of our locations, would you stand and show a little love to my friend Michael, who's right here on the second row, <laughs> here at San Pablo. Amen, <laughs> amen, and amen. We are a movement for all people to discover and deepen a relationship with Jesus Christ, and all means all. We're proud of you, Michael. We love you like crazy. Amen. Hey, so we are, uh, we are well into this one initiative, which is really rooted in the Shema. Uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And when you see him for, for who he really is, then we love him with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind and all of our strength. And God has called us to be one church, to reach one more generation. And we are rolling out the red carpet for... Uh, for families with kids with special needs, and Michael's just one of the many that are gonna that are a part of this family. And another thing that we're doing to reach one more is uh, we're putting campuses all over the place. And so I want to let you know you've heard about it, but I'll give you the official launch date for our Fleming Island campus. Anybody excited about going to Fleming Island? All right. If you clap, you got to go. I watch it. You're on camera now. <laughs> no, it's gonna be awesome. All right. So uh, we're gonna we're gonna launch our official launch date will be August the 11th. At 9 and 11:22 service at Fleming Island Campus. All right, that'll be pretty awesome. Amen. Amen. Hey, if you got your Bibles, 1 Samuel chapter 16, and I apologize for my voice, fighting a little cold. I don't know how you get a cold in July, but uh, I spent a week at a uh, family mission trip in Jamaica and then did family camp, and so one of your little germ bags got me. <clears throat> so I was coughing a lot in the first service, so I, I drank a little NyQuil. And then read the directions or the instructions, whatever. I think it's pretty much just Jack Daniels and food coloring, so <laughs> I chased it down with a Red Bull, so we'll see what happens, okay? I know that makes some of you uncomfortable, but it's going to get worse. <laughs> so we are studying uh, the book of First Samuel, Prophets, Priests, and King, and we're going to shift now. You know, the first little bit was about Samuel, the prophet of God who anointed Saul, and last week, by the way, didn't Pastor Britt do an incredible job with a very, very hard text? Amen. <clears throat> That's pretty much what I do just to keep him humble. I give him the hardest text in the whole Bible, and then I go on mission trips. And so now we're going to make a shift because King Saul has really turned inward. He's turned things toward himself. He's disobeyed God now multiple times, not just one time, multiple times. And in fact, he, bu he built a monument to himself and so when we get to chapter 16, God is ready to move on, and God is ready to anoint the next king. And so chapter 16, verse 1 says this, <clears throat> And the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul? Again, Samuel's heartbroken here. And he says, Since I have rejected him from being king over Israel. You see, the reality is, is that Jesus will save anyone from their sins but he doesn't necessarily promise to rescue us from all the consequences and collateral damage of sin. And so Saul has done this. It's not just like this one-time mess up. It's over and over and over. He disobeys God. He tries to use God. He's building an altar to himself. And at this point, even in the last chapter, he even begins to refer to God as Samuel's God and not his own. You see, ultimately... Saul, when he was anointed king, his problem is, is that he was head and shoulders of above, above all of Israel, and he knew it. The Bible says God opposes the proud. So I don't know what you think you want to do for the Lord, but the number one way to prevent that 
is to have God oppose you in that. And that is what Saul did. And so now the Lord is ready to move on. He says, fill your horn with oil and go, and I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Now what's important here is Jesse seems to be a nobody from a little nobody town. But Jesse is the grandson of Boaz and Ruth. And I don't know if you were here maybe a year ago, whenever we we studied the book of Ruth. And once again, the story of Ruth, it was a tragic situation. She was a Gentile that was widowed, and it seemed to be, she seemed to be completely down and out. And God uses this tragic situation for his purposes, for his plan, and for his glory. I mean, the redemptive history of the world at one point narrows all the way down, funnels all the way down to the obedience of this one little foreign girl. And now, once again, here we see God working where the king of Israel has gone off the tracks and it looks like everything is lost, but everything is not lost because, once again, God works in all things for the good of those that love him and are called according to his purpose. And so, verse 2, it says, and Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. Now, let me ask you this. What do you do when God asks you to do something hard? And what I mean is, what do you do when God asks you to forgive that person that you know you don't want to forgive? And what do you do when God asks you to share your faith with that person, but you really care a little bit too much about what they think about you? Or what do you do when at work, in front of everybody, God asks you to stand up and do what's right? You see, apparently it is okay to say, okay, God, I hear what you're asking me to do, and how do I do this? See, there's a big old difference in between being scared and being full of fear. Fear paralyzes. God has no problem with you being scared. You just be scared and step out in faith to do what God has called you to do. Because God will always make a way for everything that he has called you to do. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. So here's what happens. Anytime a prophet of the Lord back in the day would show up to one of these towns, and he he would sacrifice a heifer, this was like a big old worship service, then everybody in the town would show up in the town to see this thing. I mean, this is an allscape. This is like the Clay County Fair. Ain't nobody missing that. You understand? Like everybody's coming. Where I grew up, you go to the biggest place, which would have been the Walmart parking lot, and everybody would gather together. And so, essentially, God's like, all right, so you're going to do that. Everybody will be there. Tell Jesse to make sure all of his boys are there, and you've got a little shadow mission, all right? And so while you're there, I'm going to point out for you the one that you should anoint. That's what he says. Verse 4. I think sometimes we read over verses like this too fast. Samuel did what the Lord commanded. Listen, obedience matters. Obedience matters. The reason that Saul's life has gone off the rails is because he did not do what the Lord told him to do. Multiple times the Lord was gracious to him and told him what he should do. And instead he said, forget you, I got this. And look here, brother, you ain't got this. And over and over and over, Samuel just simply does what the Lord commanded, and he left the results up to the Lord. Samuel did what the Lord commanded, and he came to Bethlehem. And the elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, 
do you come peaceably? Now, in case you forget last week, here's the reason that they come trembling. Because the end of the last chapter says that, that Samuel hacked King Agag into pieces. So the rumor is swirling around. The stories are swirling around. Uh, Samuel is basically the Chuck Norris of his day. So when he rolls in the town, he's still humming, cut my life into pieces. Hey, guys, what's up? And they're like, oh, no. Are you here peaceably? And he says, peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourself and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons, and he invited them to the sacrifice. And when they came, he looked on Eliab. This is Jesse's oldest son. And he thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. You see, again, he told Jesse, Jesse, bring all your sons because God is going to anoint one of your boys. And so the first one that Jesse brings is the oldest, the biggest, the smartest, the best looking. And he looks at his outer appearance and he says, surely this must be the king that God would anoint. Now, does that sound familiar to anybody? Any of you that have been paying attention during while I've been preaching up here, which I hope you have, doesn't it sound exactly like when Saul was anointed king? That Samuel, it seems like he is about to fall into the same trap that got him into this mess to begin with. That he looks at the resume, he looks at the physical stature, and that's what got him in trouble the first time. Anybody know anybody that says they love Jesus, but they continue to do the same dumb thing over and over and over again? Anybody know somebody like that? <laughs> is anybody sitting in the seat with that person right now? It's crazy, isn't it? The same thing over and over. I can't tell you the number of people that come and seek counseling for me, which is a terrible idea. There's only three sins in the whole world, okay? Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life. It takes me six seconds to identify it in you, tell you to stop, point you to the Bible, and then leave, all right? So you should really go see somebody that's better at this thing than me. But I can't, the number of people, how, girls, how many of you know your girlfriend is she keeps dating the same dumb dude? He has a different name and address, but it's like the same dumb dude. <laughs> or the person that struggles with alcohol and keeps walking into the bar. You're like, you probably shouldn't go in there, all right? Or like my football coach used to say, if you don't want to fall down, don't walk in slippery places. This is what Samuel was about to go down this same road again and be enamored with the exterior and miss what God is doing. It says, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. This next sentence is so important. You should underline it in your Bible. You should remember this. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Now, I think all of us would agree that it's not what's on the outside, but on the inside that counts. I don't know a human in America that would say that that's not true. That the heart is more important than the exterior. However, I know you would say that, but I think you're a liar. And the reason I think you're a liar is because we say all kind of stuff that we think we believe. But your, your checkbook or millennials, uh, your bank app and <laughs> your calendar will tell you what's most important in your life. So today, before church... Did you spend more time preparing your heart to meet the king or preparing your 
face and hair and body and all of that. You see, <clears throat> surveys say, I don't know how this is true, but surveys say the average American spends 30 minutes a day getting ready. It takes me about 15 minutes. It takes my wife more than 15 minutes, all right? <clears throat> and then she's not all the way ready. It's in 15-minute increments because, you know, kind of in and out and like that one, not that one, and that, not that. You know, there's a whole situation. She has a fine job. I'm not complaining about it. She should just start earlier. But whatever, that's a different <laughs> sermon. <clears throat> so let's just, let's just say that this, this study is right and that the average person spends 30 minutes physically getting ready every day. Do you spend at least 30? And that's just to like get ready to go out into the day. Do you spend at least that much time preparing your heart? Like if you really believe it's the heart that matters and not the external, then, then if you look at your calendar, what do you spend more time on? More time at the gym or more time in the Word? Okay? Um, also, your, your bank account will tell you what the most important thing in your world is. And the average American spends about $4,000 a year in things like creams, lotion, moisturizers, anti-aging, makeup, uh, hair, fitness, etc. And the average American gives about $2,000 away to any kind of charity. So what it tells us is that I know you feel like your heart is more important, but what Americans do is we spend about twice as much money and a whole lot more time on what we look like on the outside. Now listen, I'm not saying that we should neglect the outside. In fact, this fall, um, we're, we're going to do a whole sermon on what does it look like to lo love the Lord your God with all your strength, like with your physical body, what does it look like? But <clears throat> when we begin to worship that thing, listen to me, listen to me, it will let you down. Not physically, I mean, not, li not, not, not philosophically, but like literally stuff that used to be up is going to go way down. That's what's going to happen to you, all right? Time and gravity are not your friend. And if you worship your physical self, I'm telling you, you're going to be highly, highly, highly disappointed. Can I get a witness from the 40 and up crowd? Amen. Amen. I'm telling you. I mean, seriously, if you're in your 20s and 30s, just look around, man. Look around. This is your future. I mean, I get it. You're all 20 and flexible, and you eat pizza and ice cream late at night, and just ha, 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 ha. One day you're going to have to drink an Advil smoothie to make it to work on a Monday, all right? <laughs> Glory to God. Now, again, I'm not saying neglect it, but I'm telling you, <clears throat> if you worship it, it will let you down. And we spend all of this time and energy and effort on what we look like and how we appear to everyone. And if we really are seeking we're deepening our relationship with the one who looks at the heart, then shouldn't we spend time, effort, and energy on our heart? Now, I'll give it to you. There's a lot of folks that say, well, how do I do that? How do I, how do I train my heart or prepare my heart? I know how to get my physical self ready, and I know how to get, go to the gym and have a trainer, and I'm all for that stuff, man. But how do I do that with my heart? If you, if you brought your, your journals, if you'll go back to page 70 and 71, in this, hopefully you've seen this thing before, this is a tool to do that very thing. Like you know how to put on makeup and you know how to go to the gym and you know how to jump on a piece of cardio equipment. This discipleship journey is a tool that you can use to evaluate your life and say, what am I doing to help stir the affections for Jesus in my heart? And 
If you don't have one of these, no problem. You can download our app. We should do it right now. If you haven't downloaded our app, download it right now. Go to the App Store, wherever you do that stuff, and download the COE22 app. It looks like a big E. And then on it, to the bottom right, you can go to a place called Discipleship Tools. Hit that. A page comes up with me pointing at a TV screen. You can watch a video if you want to. Or you can just hit download the tool, and this discipleship journey will be right on your phone. So the next time you're bored, instead of sitting through Instagram, maybe you could take this discipleship tool and evaluate the areas in your life that you think need to be grown and prepared towards the Lord. Now, let me give you one warning, though. Much like going to the gym. Remember how that one time when you didn't go to the gym for like three decades? Remember that? And then you woke up one day and you're like, I'm about to get right. <laughs> and you showed up in there and you signed up for like the platinum executive training thing. And <clears throat> now normally what you ought to do is it just kind of, you know, if, if you get a trainer or whatever, you identify. What do you want to improve? Your cardio, muscle mass, flexibility. Kind of pick one of those areas and go for it. And you're like, forget that. I'm doing it all today. I am going to make up for decades of neglect, and I am going to squeeze it all into the next hour. What happens? You do it, man, and you're like, this ain't that bad, and you're doing all kind of stuff, and you're in classes and burpees and whatever. And then you wake up in the morning and feel like somebody hit you with a sledgehammer. And then you begin to think, well, I'm not going to go every day, maybe every other. i got to let it breathe a little. And then the next day, you're like, forget it. Okay. <clears throat> Sometimes, spiritually speaking, that's what people do. You wake up, you're like, I got to get my life right. And you show up to church, you're like, I'm going to go to everything. And in a minute, you can be a little bit overwhelmed. What this tool will help you do, this is what I want to challenge you with today, is what if you just took one step? What if you just used this? It's just a series of questions here on the right side. Or you can look in your apps. The same thing. We have defined a disciple here at 1122. With our vision statement, a disciple is somebody that loves all people, discovers their identity in Jesus, and deepens their relationship with Jesus Christ. Because we're a movement for all people to discover and deepen a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so you could just ask yourself these questions. All right, if a disciple is somebody that loves all people, then where am I serving others? And where am I sharing my faith? And maybe God will lead you to serve, or maybe God will lead you to write down your one more and start praying for that person, or open your mouth and share your faith with them. And a disciple is somebody that discovers their identity is in Jesus. Have you surrendered your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, or are you still just trying to be a better version of you? That a, that a, a disciple is somebody that discovers that it is our role as Jesus followers to steward everything that God has given us for his glory. Are you doing that? These questions will help you with that. That a follower of Jesus is somebody that deepens their relationship with Jesus. And, they, and we deepen our relationship with the Lord by going deeper in the faith family. Do you have other believers in your life to pray for you, hold you accountable, that you could ask Bible questions to? We call that disciple group around here. And <clears throat> do you have the kind of disciplines in your world where you are connecting with the Lord through his word, through worship, through prayer? And what I'm saying is, I dare you to just take one step. If it is true that the Lord does not look on the outward appearance as man does, but the Lord looks at the heart, what is the one step you could begin to take this very week to do some heart work for the Lord?
You see, because the reality is, is that a lot of people show up to church whenever you do, <clears throat> and you get these feelings. Whether, whether it's the preacher or the song or the spirit, whatever it is, you get these feelings where you're like, you know what? I do need to take steps with the Lord. I do want to deepen my relationship with Jesus. I really do want to reconnect with the Lord. And then the problem is, is that somewhere between here and your car, nothing happens. And good intentions are worthless. Anybody got an unused piece of gym equipment at their house? Speaking of outward appearance, how is that helping? You're like, it's very helpful. helpful. It dries my clothes every day, okay? Right, it's not intent. In fact, James, the brother of Jesus, he says this. <clears throat> he says, Be not merely hearers of the word and so deceive yourself, but do what it says. He says, if we just hear the word, hear the commands of God, hear the challenges, and we don't do anything about it, we don't put it into action. He says, it's like a man or woman who would look in a mirror and see their natural face and then walk away from it and forget what they look like. Here's what this means. Every single one of us this morning got up and we looked at a mirror. And all of us made a similar assessment. We looked in the mirror and went, whoa, <laughs> Something must be done about this. Now, there's always a couple of you who are like, not me. We know, bro. Uh, we're praying for you. You should join a disciple group. You need help, all right? You need accountability. You need, you know. And I'm talking to the seventh grade boys mostly, all right? You begin to smell like a hot dog and onions. Anyway. <clears throat> but most of us look in the mirror and we make this assessment. And then what we do not do is we do not abdicate the responsibility. We don't be like, Martha, do you see what the pillows did to my face? We got to get new pillows. No. You make, you make an assessment and then you do something about it. And if you didn't do anything about it, maybe not overnight, but over time, your friends would come up to you and be like, are you okay? Are you feeling okay? Are you sure you're okay? We put your name on the needs board because we've been praying for you. Because it looks like, hey, did you lose your job? Are you sleeping in your car? Are you trying to grow dreads just on this one side? <laughs> and if you're like, oh, you mean this? Oh, I looked in a mirror. They'd be like, okay, darling, you don't get credit for just looking in the mirror and thinking about it. You got to do something. I am telling you, your walk with Jesus, it's not like he loves you more because you do more stuff for him. That is not how it works whatsoever. But if you want to abide in him, it is up to us to kill the things that are killing our relationship with Jesus and continuously do the kind of things that stir our affections for the Lord. Nobody ever just wanders into a deep and abiding relationship with anybody. I mean, Gretchen and I have been married for February will be 20 years. And I'm telling you, I know, man, you pray for her. <laughs> but she was young, it's a covenant, she can't get out. But anyway... <clears throat> Honestly, man, no, this ain't preacher talk. It's as good right now as it's ever been in 20 years. But we work really, really hard at cultivating that kind of environment whereby our hearts towards one another are stirred. No one has ever neglected their way into an abiding relationship with anybody, including Jesus. It's just like in Florida, nobody's ever neglected their lawn in the yard of the month. The chinch bugs will take it out in a minute. So... <clears throat> What we need to, if it is true that God's not just looking at the outside, but He's looking at the heart, 
Just like if you want to get in shape physically, there are some things that you can do that help you lean in towards the Lord. And then I this is a promise of God. God says, draw near to me and I will draw near to you. That's what I'm talking about. I dare you to take one of those steps and start this week. And so then he keeps going. Oh, there's one other thing I just got to say. When I read this verse and I saw Michael's testimony, <clears throat> don't you just know that when God looks at our friend Michael that was on that testimony video, who at Simbabwe is sitting right here, that he's not focused on the 21st chromosome. He's focused on his heart. And here's a young man who has a free heart because Jesus has moved in on the inside. Look, I know a whole, and look, man, so Michael might have a hard time sometimes getting all of his words together and articulating exactly what he's trying to say. But I don't know about you. I know a whole bunch of people that are real smooth talkers, but they have a wicked, 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 depraved heart. Yeah, God's not looking at the outside. God is looking at the heart. And thank you for teaching us that today, man. Thank you. <clears throat> All right, so the first guy's out. The first kid's out, Eliab, or whatever his name is. And then Jesse called Abinadab, and he made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And then Jesse made Shema pass by, and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. And then Samuel said to Jesse, are, are all your sons here? You see, I think Samuel's kind of ticked here. Because Samuel is like, I know the Lord told me to come here, and he told me that the next king would come from you. And so as I look around the circumstances, they don't seem to line up. So what is going on here? And then Jesse says, well, there remains yet the youngest. That word youngest, by the way, in Hebrew, also it literally means the most insignificant. But behold, he is keeping the sheep. Now think about this. David, in the biggest day in Bethlehem, in the biggest moment in his family, he is forgotten and overlooked. And I think, I think Samuel gets mad. That's what happens next. And so Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. Like, bro, you had one job. I told you to get the boys here, and you left one out. <clears throat> and what's happened here is that Jesse, it seems like, has already predetermined the limit for what David, his son, could do. Now, Jewish rabbinical tradition and speculation says that David could be an illegitimate child. Now, I'm, I want to be very clear. There is not a clear Bible verse that spells that out. And I don't necessarily think I'm in that camp. But as I read through the, the commentaries about this passage, there was a Jewish rabbinical tradition that said he's an illegitimate son. Here's, why, here's how they get there. One, Psalm 51.8 says this. Behold, This is David talking. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, most of us would just say that just means we're all born into sin. But when you put this with... Uh, the fact that Samuel says to Jesse, go get all your sons. And he's like, yeah, I got them all. And then Jesse's like, I mean, Samuel's like, you really got them all? And he's like, well, I kind of got this other one, but I don't like to talk about him that much. Now, whether it's true or not, here's some things that are true. Number one, there are no illegitimate children. Because every child is an idea that started with God Almighty. And God 
knits us together in our mother's womb, and God forms us in the womb, and life begins at conception, and there are no accidental children. There are tons of accidental parents. That happens a lot. But every child has been purposed of God. Don't you ever let, tell, don't you ever let somebody tell you you were an accident? Because God doesn't make mistakes. God doesn't, God doesn't make accidents. So there are no illegitimate children. Amen? Secondly, <clears throat> whether this is true or not, no matter who you are or what you've done or what you've been told or how this world has tried to label you, the God of the universe can use you for great things and to glorify his name. And listen, I get it, man. I know that some of you grew up in a church or been a part of church, and, and they, sit, they looked at you and they said, God's done with you. God's done with you because of this sin, because of your divorce, because of your orientation, because you messed this up. Because you, and and what, try, what happens is this world, and even some churches will do this, this world tries to label us so then it can deal with the label instead of dealing with the person that God made and saved. And so here's a boy that is out in the field as a shepherd. And just so you know, being a shepherd is not this incredible uh, job that we think it is as 21st century Christians. Because we've been to too many Bible bookstores. And there's, there's pretty paintings of like a shepherd and a big fluffy sheep. Nah, man, it was like the lowest of low of all jobs. And no matter what, man, no matter what, no matter what you've done or who you've done it with, or when you did it, God is not finished with you. Don't believe the lies of the enemy. In fact, in fact, let me just, all right, I'm giving you permission to just tell the truth. Okay, you don't have to brag, but just tell the truth. Was anybody here, anybody here like a valedictorian in their class? Raise your hand. Anybody? I didn't think so here at 1122. All right. <clears throat> How about this? Anybody go to college on a scholarship? If you went to college on an academic scholarship, raise them high. Come on, look up. Okay, that's good. What about athletics? Any of you um, play a high school sport? Anybody play a high school sport? Raise your hand. All right, cool. Any, any All-Americans at all of our campuses? Any All-Americans? Raise your hand. Raise your hand. Good. Okay, I, here, let me tell you this, all right? God can still use you too. <laughs> it's just real harder. It's real harder, Okay. Because in God's, God's M.O. all throughout the scriptures, he seems to take like the, like the JVB team to go win the Super Bowl with. Like all the disciples that he chose, I don't have time to get all into it, but all of them were probably rejected for what they really wanted to do. That's why they're all working with their dads or either tax collectors. That God, God is like the king of taking the least of these so that he can make much of himself. I mean, listen, just here's a few, all right? God's draft board. Noel was a drunk. Jacob was a thief and a liar. Joseph was a convict. Moses was a murderer. Rahab was a prostitute. Gideon was a coward. David was an adulterer. Solomon was a womanizer. Elijah was fearful. Jonah was a racist. Jeremiah was depressed. Mary was a pre pregnant teenager. Peter was a hypocrite. James and John were power hungry. Matthew was bad with money. Thomas was a doubter. Paul was a terrorist. Samson had long hair. And Tebow was a gator. So... <laughs> <clears throat> so he can use anybody. <laughs> I 
No illegitimate children, no way, man. God's got a purpose and a plan for every life. No matter who you are, what you've done, what this world's tried to tell you, if the tomb is empty, anything is possible. And then we're going to find this out next week when, when David takes out Goliath. We find out in chapter 17 that what could have been seen as punishment by David was actually God preparing him to be a hero. That, see, if he could have thought, why me, Lord? My brothers go get to work for King Saul, and they go get to fight and be, all, you know, and I'm out here just tending sheep. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to tend sheep. You know, sheep are like the dumbest animal on the planet. If they're heading in the wrong way, you just kick them in the face. They'll go that other way. <laughs> and maybe, and he's like, what am I going to do out here? He learns to play the harp, write some songs. And he's probably thinking, what a waste of time. He's only the greatest songwriter ever, ever in the history of the world. 3,000 years later, we're still singing Psalm 23, right? And then when he's just sitting there on the rock with nothing to do, he's like, maybe I'll just, you know, get good at this sling thing. Not that that would be, ever be useful for anything. See, let me tell you this. Sometimes what we see as punishment is actually God's provision for us as he's preparing us for some other thing that he has. He just hadn't revealed it yet. And the only way you will know, the only way you will know is God says, be faithful with a little, and then I may give you more. It's only God that elevates. And so don't waste your time out in the pasture. David never did. And so he's out in the pasture, and they go get him. And it says, now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. That word ruddy in Hebrew, it's weird. It can either mean ginger, like he's a redhead with freckles, or it can mean he's like disheveled and smells like dirt. I, that's what, it can mean either one. Either way, what the Bible wants us to know here is that when you look at him, you don't think mighty warrior. You think, that's a nice harp and he has pretty eyes. Nobody's thinking that should be the king. And yet, the Lord said, arise, anoint him for this is he. You see, that word anoint in Hebrew is Messiah. It's Messiah, Meshua. The Greek word for that is Christos or Christ. And so essentially what is going on here is that, is that David is anointed or set apart. They would pour oil on him and say, this one is set apart for God's kingdom. And the reason that David is anointed king is not because of his resume, it's not because of his stature, it's not because of the people he knows. The reason that he is anointed king, there's only one reason, it's because God has decided that God wants to use David for his glory. You see, here's the point. God does not call the equipped, but he equips the called. That's it. That God does not call the equipped. That God did not save you because he needs you. He saved you because he loves you. And his divine power has given us everything we need to accomplish everything that he has called us to accomplish. And yet, and yet, on this planet right now, there are two fathers. There is the father of love and there is the father of lies. And my question to you is, which one are you listening to? Because listen, man, I get it. I got saved when I was in high school, and I came back to my church, <clears throat> and I began to get involved. And they had, um, 
They had like leadership positions in the youth group, and they told me I could not hold one of those leadership positions because my parents were going through a divorce. Now, maybe had they had their own reasons, I think they were dumb. But I began in that moment to hear the whispers from the enemy to say, you don't have what it takes. You don't have what it takes. If the people only knew the stuff you struggle with and the things that you've done, I'm telling you, the enemy wants to get in here. He wants to whisper those lies to you. He wants you to think the reason you're out here in the pasture with the sheep is because you deserve to be out here. This is punishment. Because of the things that you've done, God can never use you again, and God can never use you again. And your divorce will be the biggest thing that ever happened in your life. Or that abortion will be the biggest thing that ever happened in your life. Or that drug addiction will be the biggest thing that ever happened in your life. Or that bankruptcy will be the biggest thing that ever happened in your life. And God would never mess with a loser like you. He needs winners. You know what all that's called? That's called condemnation. Condemnation is a lie from the pit of hell. Condemnation is a building term. It's not a feeling. It's a building term that when somebody inspects a building and they condemn it, they are saying, this building is unfit for use. That's what the enemy wants you to believe. The enemy wants you to look at you and say, you are unfit for use. But then the gospel enters and says, but therefore now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, look what happens in the very next sentence with David. It says, then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And then Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. That the Spirit of the Lord (coughs) rushed upon David from that day forward. Do you know what the Bible means when it says, therefore now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? That you may think, I am unfit for use. And then God Almighty looks at your life, looks at the same building that the enemy said, that building is unfit for use. Now listen, I'm not saying you're not jacked up. You're more jacked up than anybody in here knows, all right? You are. Wretched, wretched, depraved. We are are sick people. And yet, through the power of the cross... God looks at us, wretched and crooked and depraved, and he looks literally at you, and he goes, that's not a building unfit for use. For anybody that would admit that they're a sinner in need of a Savior, for anybody that would believe that when Christ died on the cross, that counted for me, for anybody that would confess Jesus as my Lord, that's not a building unfit for use. In fact, that's going to be my permanent address here on earth. Did you know that's what the Bible means when it says your body is a temple? It has nothing to do with what you look like in a bathing suit. Can I get a witness? Praise (laughs) Jesus. It means that the almighty sovereign king of the universe's permanent address on earth is inside the heart of the believer. This is what happens here for David. This is what happens to every believer that puts their faith in Jesus. Listen, Christian, when you put your faith in Jesus, you are immersed in the Holy Spirit. You don't need more Holy Spirit. The question is, does this Holy Spirit have all of you? And because when that happens, when you put your faith in Jesus, then, then the Spirit of God in you, he does a whole bunch of stuff. One is the Spirit of God in every believer is a deposit that, will, that holds your place in eternity with God. Then the role of the Holy Spirit in your life is to point people and point you to Jesus. 
You see, we saw in King Saul, he started pointing everything to himself. What we'll find out with King David is that he is a humble man that points to the Messiah. I mean, think about this. David is a shepherd, and he says, the Lord is my shepherd, which makes him a sheep. And he knows sheep are dumb. That's what he's saying. He's saying the only way I can survive, like sheep don't get to survive because they are like good survivor sheep. Did you know sheep don't even have a flight or fight instinct? They are just created with Velcro head to toe so predators can grab onto them easily. And David looks at that and goes, that's kind of like me, okay? You see, the Spirit of God points us to Jesus. A role of the Holy Spirit in your life is to begin to produce fruit in your life. Not manufacture activity, but as we abide in Jesus, as we do the things that we were talking about earlier, as you put yourself in the kind of environments that stir your affections for the Lord as you get closer and closer to Jesus, what begins to happen is God in you begins to produce the fruit of the Spirit, like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. If I take a two-by-four and I staple an orange to it, that does not make it an orange tree. If you walk out of here and you just try to be patient, you ever tried to be patient? Think about that, you idiot. You can't. No, it has to happen from the inside out. This is called progressive sanctification. The closer you get to Jesus, the more this Jesus stuff starts coming out of you. Some of you have told me this. Some of you, I had a person after service one one time come to me and said, look, I put my faith in Jesus, and I was always wondering, does it work, does it work, does it work? I got up one night, and I stepped on a Lego. You ever step on a Lego? You ain't felt pain. Do you hit a Lego about 2 a.m., right? And he said, out of my mouth came not a cuss word. And I thought, that is self-control. It's happening. I think I'm a Christian. That's what happened in that person's life. That, is, that literally is the spirit in you producing kindness where kindness used to be absent. Producing gentleness where gentleness used to be absent. Producing love where love used to be absent. It's what the spirit does in the life of the believer. That, that the Spirit of God is, the, the primary nickname that Jesus used for the Holy Spirit was this. He said, I'm going to send for you a comforter, a comforter. A part of ha- what happens when you put your faith in Jesus and the Spirit of God dwells inside of you, then he can give you a peace that transcends understanding and guards your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. Here's what this means, that some of you got saved this last year. You put your faith in Jesus, and this year you are walking into situations that used to freak you out. And now what's freaking you out is how even though the situation is going crazy, somehow you haven't put your faith and trust in the situation. You actually put your faith in Jesus. And when people say, how are you making it? You go, I really don't know. It's like this peace that transcends understanding. See, ultimately, if you did a good study of pneumatology, the study of the Spirit in the New Testament, what you would find is that essentially the Holy Spirit works on the thing in your life that God the Father pays most attention to, your heart. So God says, don't look on the outside like man does, but I look at the heart. And when he anoints David, He rushes the Holy Spirit upon him 
to continuously nurture and grow and stir his heart. So let me ask you a question. If God is looking not at your physique and he's not looking at your resume and he's not looking at the external things in your life, but he is looking at your heart, then what does he see? What does he see? Does he see fear and pride and condemnation? Or does he see a broken and contrite heart? David would say this in Psalm 51, 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You know, at the end of every service, we close the same way all the time, most of the time. We we close by singing. We join our voices together to sing. The reason that we do this is because I'm telling you, somehow, by the way God created things in rhythm, there's something about the rhythm of music and the rhythm of the saints joining their voices together that does a thing in your heart that other things just won't do. So today, I dare you, and I'm mostly talking to the men in the back, I dare you to open your mouth and sing. Not for your sake, and good Lord, not for your neighbor's sake, because we know there's probably a reason you don't. But that you would take a one little step of faith and see if God might do something to soften that thing that he is paying so much attention to. So that's why we sing. It's for our hearts. And at the end of the services, we say this all the time. You notice we don't take up an offering. And at the end of the service, we say, man, we just want to bring to God our first and our best. Because he first loved us by giving us his best. This isn't about money. This is about, Jesus said, wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And as an act of worship, every single week, we want to make it our habit that we would bring a part of our heart to the Lord. And say, God, I am overwhelmed that you are first. And so I want to take what has a tendency to be first in my life, this money, and I want to declare you are the one thing that drives everything. I dare you to take a step of generosity this week and watch what God uses that to do in your heart. And then lastly, every week say, and and why don't you come pray? Why don't you come pray? We've got these rails, we've got these carpets, and why don't you just come and bend before the Lord and essentially say what David is saying here. God, I bring to you a broken and contrite heart. Whatever ways in me that don't line up with you, would you point those out to me so that I can lay those on the altar? God, whatever hard parts of my heart that you need to chisel out of here at the altar in prayer, God, I offer them to you because I want to love the Lord my God with all my heart. Because I know you're not looking at all this other stuff that I'm spending all this time, energy, and effort on, but I know you're looking at my heart. So today, at all of our campuses, when we close... When we sing, would you sing with your heart? And when we bring our tithes and offerings, God loves a cheerful giver, what he he or she has decided in their heart to give. And when we pray, like Hannah, in chapter one, why don't you come and pour out your heart to the Lord? Would you please stand and pray with me? Our good and gracious heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. Because you love us first. God, I thank you and I praise you that though we live in a world run by the father of lies who wants us to attach our identity with our past activities. God, we live in a world that wants to label us 
by all of these kind of external labels. And God, I pray that you would set us free. You would set us free to understand that you and only you get to tell us who we are. And you tell us we're free in Jesus Christ. You tell us we are sons and daughters of the Most High King. So God, whether we feel like our lives are on top of the world right now or whether we feel like we're out in the pasture wondering, God, have you forgotten about me? God, may we trust you, the sovereign king of the universe who is also our heavenly father that not just looks at but takes care of our heart. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.